Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode. And today, what we're going to focus on is something we really haven't talked about too much on the podcast is that parenting dynamic, parenting with a partner, navigating that. I have an amazing resource on the podcast today. So Pasha Marlowe is a marriage and family therapist by training, and she turned into a neurodiversity coach and counselor. And she works with couples a lot to help help them navigate parenting an autistic or neurodivergent child, as well as we often know just by prevalence alone, and I've talked a little bit about this on the podcast, is by having an autistic child, you're more likely or your partner's more likely to be neurodivergent themselves. So we're going to talk all things that parenting relationship and how you really can increase your communication with your partner to help ultimately make this journey a little bit more collaborative and seamless and how you can be a unit in working together. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent, supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So I'm really excited to have Pasha here today. Pasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. And so fun little fact is we actually connected through TikTok. Y'all know on the podcast, I love social media. I think it provides so many amazing resources to learn about autism and neurodiversity. And yeah, that's ultimately how we connected. I don't remember the exact behind the scenes, but I remember TikTok was the place. Yeah. Yeah. I I find so many wonderful connections in TikTok. And I think 90% of my clients, frankly, come from TikTok. So that's where neurodivergent people are hanging out. For sure. Yeah. Give us a little background into you and how did you get into this work and what does your work look like on a day-to-day basis as well? Yeah. I started 30 years ago as a marriage and family therapist, probably from a child, from my childhood, I wanted to help people. I knew I'd be a helper or healer. I'm very sensitive to human, I'm autistic ADHD myself. So my lens is through human pattern and human interaction. So I knew I'd go into this work, became a marriage and family therapist, did that for a while. Then because it was long ago where really therapists weren't able to share as much vulnerably about their own stories. We were a little bit more limited as to the structure of what a therapy appointment looks like. I didn't feel like it was inclusive enough. I didn't feel like it was healthy to identify one client or one patient. So from more of a systems theory, I like the idea of the whole family being the the client. So I started to 
look at a more preventative and proactive way of helping people. So I went into health and wellness, yoga, fitness, mindfulness, but through a mental health lens and started to basically be doing therapy while we were practicing yoga or talking about mental health while we were doing Pilates or going for a walk with somebody and having an appointment about health coaching, but obviously also talking about mental health. Then had children, I have three children, 27, 25, 16, all neurodivergent, clearly at the time, my husband, ADHD. So I started my work in this field by learning about my own family, wanting to understand my own family more, really not even realizing. I was so masked, I didn't realize I was masked, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't realize my yeah. own neurodivergence. And still, until I started really digging into research, and of course, when my kiddos got a 504 or struggled in school, just it all seemed very familiar. It all seemed very familiar, but I didn't get a diagnosis as a child or help as a child. So flash forward to maybe five or six years ago, I started seeing a wave of neurodivergent midlife adults, parenting, neurodivergent children, and really struggling and in midlife with hormonal changes and with the pandemic and this trifecta of having neurodivergent children during a pandemic while in menopause, like this became a wave of who I started to really focus on, which ended up initially being midlife women, but now parents and families in general of neurodivergent children. Wow. Yeah. So such the journey. And I want to just comment on this like therapy, like piece initially, because it's super interesting. People that listen to the podcast regularly know I very openly share my story, but that's been the shift in the mental health field. And I think it's only been truthfully the last couple of years where it's become more accepting to bring that personal lens in. But I still come across therapists to this day that are like, you share about yourself, like you talk about your personal life on social media, like you talk about having a brother that was diagnosed with autism. And it's, yeah, I do. And almost that humanness. I'm curious, and this might be a hard question to answer, but I'm just genuinely curious. Do you think if the state of like how things are with therapy are, how therapy is now, do you think if that was like when you were active in therapy, do you think you would have stayed within the therapy realm or do you think you would have still transitioned to that coaching realm? I think I would have stayed. I, I lead with vulnerability. I don't filter well. I feel like the most human, responsible, kind thing is to share. I think relatability is accessibility. I do not do the blank slate therapy thing. So had it been a little bit more accessible to all and more inclusive and a little bit more flexible. Mm -hmm. I think I would have, I think I would have stayed. My thesis was on how fathers are important and mothers shouldn't always get primary custody. That sounds archaic right now. Like that was my thesis because I was like, what? Why are women getting full custody and men only seeing their kids on the weekends? Like fathers need shared custody. Like the fact that was my thesis just boggles my mind sometimes. That's how much has changed in yeah. our culture. And, and I also, because I identify as LGBTQ, but frankly, almost all of my clients 
if not identify as LGBTQ, have a lens through neuronormativity and heteronormativity, a little bit more of a flexible, fluid lens. And I feel like I always bring that lens into my work with couples, with families, everything. I think it's really important to talk about that intersection or just to acknowledge it. I neuroqueering is what I call it. But I think if you're going to serve or parent or lead neurodivergent children or adults, you have to be willing to serve parent or lead queer or LGBTQ children and adults. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We know that there is such an overlap there. And I know for you, just in our side conversations too, you almost view it all within this like larger neurodiversity umbrella. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So the neurodivergent umbrella, I think for most people in the world right now is still fairly limited to the understanding of ADHD, autism, dyslexia, the popular ones. However, in the neurodivergent umbrella, I include, and a lot of, and a lot of other experts too, I'm mainly inspired by the work of Sunny Jane Wise, lived experience educator who just wrote a fantastic book called We Are All Neurodiverse. Like the entire human species is neurodiverse. Some of us are neurodivergent. I actually think more than half of us are neurodivergent. I think most people are neurodivergent and some people mask as neurotypical. That's just my opinion. But in the neurodivergent umbrella, I think includes anything that that diverges for normativity, which would include LGBTQ, which would include mental health struggles, which would include disability, traumatic brain injury, epilepsy, but even a lifelong practice of meditation, like anything that diverges from neuronormativity is neurodivergent. And so that goes under the neurodivergent umbrella. There are neurotypes that we can specifically talk about. Like today, we might lean into more specifically autism, but I don't think we should be using autism and neurodivergent as synonyms, nor do I think, and also there's a lot of people say there's neurodiverse individuals, and that's just not true. You can't be a neurodiverse individual. So I talk a little bit about language and not just from a grammatical sense, just it, it's inclusive. It's true. And I want to, I want people to understand how to use the language. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that can be tricky of figuring all of this out. I think one of the cool things is there is so much change that is happening, which is amazing. And sometimes it is hard to keep up. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. And actually, I'd be genuinely curious your input on this. So you hear neurodiversity affirming therapists a lot, right? That's or therapy or whatever, like I'm neurodiversity affirming. And I had someone be like, no, that's not right. So then I started doing a deep dive myself. And now often I say neurodivergent affirming, especially because my work is with autistic children and their families. Even within that, your understanding of it, would you say that you're neurodivergent affirming, neurodiversity affirming? What are your thoughts there? So neurodiversity affirming is definitely more widely known as a term. And I, when I speak to businesses, I still say neurodiversity affirming because I'm teaching them about neurodiversity, not just neurodivergence. I'm teaching them about how we can collaborate neurotypicals and neurodivergence. So it is really neurodiversity affirming. However, I agree with you as a therapist, if we're going to say neurodiversity affirming, that's like basically we affirm everybody. So it doesn't really even mean anything. So if you say neurodivergent affirming, 
hopefully that means, and of course for you, it means that you have experience and knowledge. What I don't love is when somebody says, I'm trauma-informed or I'm LGBTQ friendly or I'm neurodivergent friendly because they're like cool with people. Like I, what I think is a disservice is when therapists and coaches put out that, that language, but then they don't understand the nuances of right. serving that population then what likely happens is somebody, let's say, who's autistic comes to the therapist, sees that they're neurodivergent, informed or friendly or affirming, and then expects that they will actually know about autism. And then there's stigma and stereotyping, and there's not actually knowledge there. First, I'm not like a state statementing, but I think it's a disservice to say trauma-informed if you don't understand the impacts of trauma. And same true with neurodivergent affirming. Yeah. And I have seen that, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it's like the, and it's interesting. I, how do I articulate this? I hear from people that this idea of like neurodiversity or neurodivergence is just the hot thing right now. And that personally is not something that I agree with, no. but I do think what's happening is we are seeing therapists recognize that is quote unquote, like the way to say it, like the hot right now. And so then they're just throwing it in without the work behind the scenes yeah. you know, of what that truly means and making shifts from the medical models framework into an actual affirming framework. Um, Absolutely. And it's more than just a term. Even I'll look at red flags in a website or a bio constantly. And if somebody says neurodiverse individual, I know they're not fully informed in the language. If somebody says, and this is subtle, but like universal design instead of inclusive design, I'm like, all right, are they working in the field of inclusivity? If they say hidden disability or invisible disability instead of non-apparent disability, I know that they haven't really delved into the disability world yet. And so there's a few red flags that when you're in the community and in the field, you're like, ah, okay. They're like, not to say that they're not trying and it's hard to keep up with all the inclusive language, right. but if I'm going to go to a therapist or a coach in my vulnerability with, with my neurodivergent family, I'm want to go to somebody who's very informed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I think this is such an interesting conversation for parents to hear, but also understanding that just because someone says they are neurodivergent affirming doesn't actually mean that they're practicing in that way. And I think getting savvy about some of this can be helpful, especially because I have families that come to me and I know you do as well that are looking for this type of care, oh, yes. that it, it's not just trying to quote unquote, cure their child's autism or things like that, that absolutely still do exist in the world. Another really great neurodiversity affirming strength base versus pathologizing or a medical model base would be if you, if somebody's saying, do you have a child with autism? instead of do you have an autistic child so it's subtle but the identity first language really says a lot about that person's perspective as to are they working within the neurodiversity paradigm and a social model or are they working within the medical model and a pathology paradigm and yeah and it's an interesting subtlety but yeah. it's it's important absolutely so let's start diving into then this kind of relationship work that you often do. I guess let's start there. What does that usually look like when you're working with couples of an autistic child or couples who you know, have neurodivergence among themselves? 
Yeah, because usually if a couple has a neurodivergent child, one or both is neurodivergent. So we start there and sometimes they don't recognize it. So sometimes it's a conversation initially about how they experience life, learning, loving, and how they resonate with their child's struggles. But almost always there's a conversation about isolation and the isolation socially in the isolation within the couple, because usually there's one person and unfortunately gender norms make it so that it's often the mother. I'm being very generalized here because I understand there's same-sex marriages. I understand there's all these different forms of a family. However, stereotypically and typically, unfortunately, still the mother is the primary caregiver. So the mother is not only isolated socially because of extra needs and also in the relationship because she might be feeling overwhelmed with the physical tasks, the emotional load. And so often that's why people start to come to me is that they're feeling overwhelmed and they feel like their partner doesn't understand or they feel like their family, their extended family doesn't support their parenting structure. So isolation comes up often as does and a dynamic of the, in this case, autistic child being the center of everybody's universe. All, you know, the couple, the neurotypical siblings, if there are any siblings, because it's almost like if the autistic child is having a good day, everyone can possibly have a good day. But if the autistic child is struggling, everyone's going to struggle. There's that feeling, especially if there's a PDA profile in there. But there's, it's an interesting dynamic to talk to couples about how each of them thinks about autism or even how each of them thinks about discipline or meltdowns or sensory overload do they use the same language, but do they also have the same understanding of it? And so often it's a breaking down of that, just really talking to them about how they're individually feeling and understanding the situation. But connection between the couple, in, in the ADHD world, there's a lot of talk about the parent-child dynamic within the couple, but I see this in the in couples with an autistic child or where one is uh, autistic or ADHD, a combination of autism and ADHD, when one partner plays the parent role to the other partner. So there's a parent role and there's a child role. And that dynamic leads to overwhelm for the parent role, leads to shame and criticism and rejection from the child role, and really messes, frankly, with intimacy and sex, which is could be a whole other podcast, how couples dynamics play out in the bedroom. But that dynamic comes up a lot, the parent-child dynamic. Yeah. And I have a few thoughts on this, but before we go there, I know you have a podcast where I'm sure you've talked about a lot of this in depth. What is the name of your podcast? And we'll also link it in the show notes too. Neuroqueering is the podcast. And on TikTok at Neuroqueer Coach, I often talk about couples dynamics because that's where the couples live. They're on TikTok and then they watch a TikTok video of mine and then they just happen to send it to their partner. They're just like, hey, this seems familiar. And it's about a dynamic of a autistic couple or a neurodivergent couple. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, because we're going to cover what we can today, but also this is your life work. And so there's so much more that you continuously share. So I think the isolation is so fascinating. I see that time and time again as well. The kind of parenting relationship within the couple. So interesting to think about. One of the things that I'm wondering, I feel like I commonly come across and wondering if you, if this comes into your work and supporting is I 
find that often the primary caretaker is the one who maybe has really done a deep dive into autism, understands autism so much more. Even on the diagnostic side, families presenting, I'll hear all the time. And again, sticking within this stereotypical lens, the mom will say to me, I'm really concerned. Dad is not as concerned about this, but he's okay. I'm here, but he might think I'm crazy, but I'm really concerned. Are those type of conversations coming up frequently in the couples you're working with? Absolutely. One person is usually the deep diver in the middle of the night, researching, rabbit holing, and then they wake up and they have a new idea, a new concept that they've learned, new language that they want to adopt. And it's a lot. It's a lot for the partner who either doesn't have the time or the energy or the desire to deep dive. And so let's take PDA, for example, what, and I'm in a neurodivergent relationship, I'm autistic and ADHD, and my partner soon to be X for whatever complication you want to go into that is ADHD, but we're living together and parenting a neurodivergent child, go figure. When I learned that PDA could be reframed as persistent drive for autonomy, I really liked that the pathology was gone. I really liked that reframe. And from now and forevermore, that will be how I understand PDA. Mm -hmm. And it will madden me. (laughs) You actually commented on one of my posts, which we can talk about in a second. So keep going. And it, it will enrage me, frankly, to teach, wake up and give a lecture. All right, everybody, just so you know, this is the reframe for PDA and this makes sense. And this is what I believe. So this is what's going to be from now on. And then if somebody miss, if somebody in my family forgets or doesn't use the reframe, I get really sensitive about it. I understand that this is also my complete impatience and intolerance for people's lack of desire to also dig in and research all night long instead of sleeping. So I acknowledge that. But that comes up often where one person is just so passionate and the other person feels almost apathetic, but it's not true. It's not that the other partner doesn't care. It's just the other person is actually sleeping and not deep diving. So it's good to have one person sleep and one person deep dive. Yeah. Somebody needs to be well rested, but, but I'm acknowledging that I am the one who deep dives and gets very passionate and, and often intolerant, but that dynamic shows up in my, in my office often. I'm like, oh, this looks familiar. recognize this. Yeah. I recognize that. But I think even before we go to the PDA thing, the comment on the apathy is it can appear as if someone, the other partner is apathetic. Right. I often find that sitting with parents though, it usually isn't apathy. It's usually some sort of trying to suppress the emotions that are coming up that the parent is navigating. I don't know exactly how you frame this, but I often talk about, and I I know this can even be a little controversial about this idea of grief, but the grief is not the child. It's not about something is wrong with the child. It's the grief of shifting expectations. And I like to call it grief because we often see similar emotions coming up where there can be some sadness, some questioning, anger, almost like this, why me? And parents do go through this, but I find that parents often go through it at different pacing. And so the person who's deep diving often has gone through those emotions already. And, And then the other partner who's not deep diving hasn't gone 
through those emotions themselves yet, or at least not at the same pace. Any thoughts on that? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Yeah, I like the idea of grief. I feel that deeply. I feel like there's a loss of what was. Often people say, since you became, since you got diagnosed autistic, all of a sudden you seem more autistic. And this comes up often. Since you got the diagnosis of ADHD, you just seem more ADHD. Well, it's true because once we get the clarity, we actually start embracing and embodying all that finally makes sense that we finally have language for, that we finally understand about ourselves. So I became, about five years ago, much more sensitive. I became much less tolerant for noise and smells and lights. And so my husband at the time grieved the loss of his masked, carefree, neurotypical wife, Mm -hmm. grieved the loss of the relationship where I masked up and agreed and consented to things I don't any longer consent to. There's grief of the old future is gone, right? And when your child gets diagnosed, there's grief on what you imagined your child's life would look like. And caveat to that, if somebody says, I'm so sorry, your child has autism, big red flag, right? That should not be how it's phrased. My autistic oldest child, and I don't want to derail you too much from your original question about grief, but if I don't say it, I'll regret it. Only talked about cars, only liked cars, just all his life and still to this day at 27 talks and talks about cars and enjoys cars. There was a time where my husband and I at the time were like, oh, should we become a little more, let's make him a little more well-rounded. Maybe he, maybe we should introduce him to more science or math. He's really good at those things too. When he goes to college, shouldn't he maybe major in something that's more broad? He said, no, I want to major in car design. We're like, is that a thing? So for four years, no math, no science, no English, just cars. He's like, yep. He's like, it's perfect. And there was a moment with my ex-husband and I where we're like, is this a good idea? And then thankfully, that little voice in my head was like, what? This is what he loves. This is how he'll learn. He learns math through cars. He learns English through cars. He learns science through cars. And he drew cars and he became Ford's youngest car designer, which is what he does today. And he makes a ton of money doing it what he would do for fun every day for no money. He is doing for a lot of money and he's living in Detroit, which makes me sad because he's far away because I'm in Maine. However, he's with car people. He is with other autistic people who love cars and it's perfect for him. And so had we tried to broaden his interests, had we tried to enroll him into college for something that that we thought would maybe be a a more stable career, a more, a smarter way to do college, it it would have been a disaster. And I'm so grateful for his tenacity, my, my son Josh's ability to say, I like cars. Why would I want to do anything else? We're like only 2% of people who graduate 
from car design school become car designers. He's like, all right, I'm one of the 2%, like literally with no question, I am the 2%. And okay. I was like, okay, I get that. Because what the birth control says, 0.999.9, I'm the 0.1 who gets pregnant on birth control. So I'm like, all right, all right <laughs> I'm going to go with this. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, I just telling that story because I know a lot of parents are worried about how their child will live on their own, how their child will make a living, how their child would make friends and find their special interests, their hyper-focus, whatever you want to call it, dig in and really allow it to blossom. Yeah. In different directions. Yeah. And so I think just to tie it back, there is, there can be some grief over the shift in expectation, the loss in expectations. And that story is a beautiful example of, no, when you birthed him, you probably weren't thinking he's going to be so passionate about cars and that's all he's going to want to talk about and think about. And this is going to end up being his education. And then he's going to become a car designer and then he's going to work at Ford. That's not the path you envisioned for him. And at the same time, look at that. And because you trusted also, I want to point this out, you trusted your parenting instincts in this, right? When he was being raised, neurodiversity and talking about neurodivergence was not a thing. I know that for a fact. I got a diagnosis. This yeah. is, yeah, this so is. So he didn't even get diagnosed then. Nope. He was put in what some schools call like the friendship club, the social club, where they put kids who uh, don't make friends easily together, thinking they'll make friends easily with each other. That never works. He was put at a table in the cafeteria with a bright orange tablecloth for kids who have trouble figuring out where to sit, how to make friends. Let's put all of those kids at a table with bright orange tablecloth so that they stand out even more. It didn't work. It didn't work. He came home exhausted from being overwhelmed, from being overstimulated, from masking. And so he would go upstairs into a room where I felt bad. I'm like, my son is living in a room with no windows. That he, he, it was a bedroom. It was illegal, but whatever. It was a bedroom in the attic with no windows. Not for the zoning. Zoning people, hopefully listening, are like, ah. He wanted complete darkness and silence and just the ability to focus on cars. And he needed that to regulate after a big school day. And then he'd come down to eat and then he'd go back up and he'd draw cars. And there was a grieving, pulling it back to grieving. I promise I'm following your track here. I grieved time with him. I grieved that he didn't have friends. Mm -hmm. I grieved that he didn't do theater like I wanted him to. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's a grieving. There's a grieving. But then there's also a surrendering and a letting go and a curiosity that I feel like we all need to take on really in all relationships and life. But certainly if we have a kiddo who's got a, a fairly defined path that we didn't expect. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now we're going to take it back to the PDA topic real quick, because I'm curious, this is one of the things. So like you said, you often frame it as pervasive drive for autonomy. I'm just going to, I've introduced it a couple of times on the podcast. I haven't had a full blown episode on it. It's it's persistent drive. Oh yeah. Persistent. It's interesting. I definitely have heard people say pervasive drive for autonomy too. I suppose I I'm thinking about what pervasive means. It's funny. For some reason, that feels more pathologizing to me than persistent. Like persistent drive for autonomy is what I hear most of all. But that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I'm conflating things too. But I often do still use 
pathological demand avoidance. And you commented on one of my LinkedIn posts. And I've talked about this difference too. But for those of you that don't know what this is, your child's body, it can be a profile of autism. So not all autistic children have PDA, but your child's body goes into fight or flight response with a perceived loss of autonomy or a demand. And I, it's funny, I just haven't done an episode on it, but a large majority of my referrals through my private practice are either, does my child have PDA or I'm pretty sure they do, but how do I support them in this? And I talked in that LinkedIn post, I do still use pathological demand avoidance. And I think some of that is the nature of quote unquote diagnosing it. There is some medical model tied to that as well. So I completely respect what you're saying here. And I do actually think that persistent drive for autonomy explains it much better than the name of pathological demand avoidance. Like that just sounds jargony to me. It, It does. And the only thing I'll add about PDA from my personal experience and professional experience is that sometimes we avoid things that we like too. We'll avoid things that bring us joy and pleasure. And so this is where I start to really lean towards the reframe because for me, it's about when my nervous system feels dysregulated or unsafe, which includes when something's very joyful, which includes when something's very pleasurable. It still feels unsafe because it's different. And I think the brain defaults to what's comfortable and what's familiar. And so, I will avoid going out with friends. I'll avoid going to a Christmas concert. I'll avoid sex. And this is, that's where to me, it feels like it's different than this demand avoidance because nobody's demanding that of me. I'm avoiding my own demands as well. And, And so I feel like it's about safety as much as anything and about staying in the familiar comfort zone where we know what to expect And that feels safer than even trying something we think we'd like. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And one of the ways, not that we need to settle this of like exactly how it should be referred to that I often talk about though, is sometimes those are those internal demands on ourselves that, that create this nervous system activation or, and we can see this too with autistic children, they might have this and some of this has been what i've learned from other people i've done been doing a deep dive myself as referrals increase i'm like this is something we need to be understanding more and parents need support in but it's sometimes even a you were talking about cars earlier right for individuals that have pda sometimes their interests can feel like a demand themselves and we might then see that interest shift Or sometimes too, even overriding for kids that are in that like burnout pattern, they'll override the need for sleep, the need for food. And that ultimately that becomes that internal demand is often how I conceptualize it. But I'd love, what are your thoughts there of kind of thinking of it as an internal demand? Yeah, I definitely think that's true. The internal demand is as important as external demands and actually even if it were just demand avoidance, it would feel so much better. It's the pathological part because it's 
is it pathological if there's reason there's a reason why i'm avoiding and it's i bring this up often i say drop the disorder rather than asd drop the d autism rather than bipolar disorder let's drop the disorder bipolar even ptsd like post-traumatic stress disorder if i've had a trauma and there's stress why is it a disorder that i'm having flashbacks and stress from it so in this idea of dropping the disorder and dropping pathology from our language that that's more my beef with it totally no and i hear that and it's funny you're challenging me in the best way possible right now because in my diagnostic reports i initially say referred for an evaluation for autism spectrum disorder parenthesis asc Further, I forget my exact language, but basically saying now I'm just going to refer to it as autism throughout the whole report. So I, there is this little bit of the game that I still have to play with the medical model. Absolutely. Because, Diagnostically. Oh, yeah, exactly. But you're making me think too of when I'm talking about PDA using a similar pattern and you're totally right. I think one thought that I do have, and this is not good justification, is it's so unrecognized in the U.S. that I feel like almost having pathological then makes the medical model pause and actually read and learn about it. But that's not a good argument for why we should have that name. That's a systems issue that's popping. Yeah, I know that this comes up often and it's the biggest debate I, I have with people and I understand both sides is it's similar to if it's not a diagnosis, if it's not in the DSM, will people get services? Will people get the help that they need if it isn't called a disorder? When I made a post about putting LGBTQ under the neurodivergent umbrella, I got a lot of feedback about it was homosexuality finally removed from the DSM and now you want to put it back in. I'm like, no, I do not want to put it back in the DSM. That's not my point. But they're like, then if you link it with things that are in the DSM, then it pathologizes it. And I get it. But if the overall goal is to depathologize and to move away from something like the DSM and move into something that's more trauma-informed and more nuanced, then like it has to start somewhere. Diverging from the status quo or disrupting the status quo is part of my work, but I'm not trying to cause trouble. I'm not trying to get people to not receive their services, obviously. And I take medicine for my ADHD. And if ADHD wasn't considered a medical issue, I probably wouldn't get medicine. So I understand and I don't love that I say I am ADHD. I am attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that doesn't feel right to me. And so I feel like there's this shift that will happen where we can still get the services and the resources we need through our access needs and depathologize the language. And I think something like ASD, that, that to me feels like an easy shift to rather than ASD, autism. It, right. it, it shifts how somebody is perceived. It shifts how, from an empowering point of view, I don't love, somebody saying, oh, you're ASD. I'm like, no, I'm not disorder. I'm, aut I'm autistic. And yeah. so I know I'm like five, 10 years thinking of like where it could be, but if we don't start challenging and shifting it now, it won't shift ever. But I totally understand the controversy and the debate and the fears. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this specific part has been awesome. I want to circle back to the couples piece real quick before we wrap up the episode, but I think this was an important conversation to have when for parents, I talk about neurodiversity and neurodivergence on the podcast all the time, but there hasn't been a conversation like this. So thank you for going there with you're, me. You're welcome. And it does bring it back to couples because couples will argue. This is one of the arguments yeah. I have with my partner. And if people are parenting 
or going to a 504 IEP meeting and they have a certain way of thinking and then their partner doesn't agree, that's going to cause some relationship issues. And it's going to, again, isolate and put a lot of the efforting and emotional toll on the person who has done a lot of the work. It's It would be hard to have both people be as maybe passionate about the research. Often it makes sense to delegate, like you take over the doctor's appointments and the insurance stuff, and then you do some of the more cooking and cleaning. I think it's good to go into silos. What am I good at? And I'm really good at the researching. And fortunately, my partner doesn't mind going to the grocery store and that just, thank you. Good. You do the grocery store and the trash. Thank you. He doesn't mind. But at the same time, we have to both be able to communicate, especially with other professionals around our child's needs. So when we go to a doctor's appointment, coming in with a sense of alliance and communication prior about what our goals are for the appointment, that's really important for the sake of our child and the services they require. That makes sense. So what would be, what are some like go-to tips that you're recommending for couples to help increase their communication around either their autistic child or even within their relationship, especially again, when that neurodivergence piece is coming into play? Yeah. The simplest one is you have to talk to each other. I know it seems so simple, but we are all very distracted and busy and, and all the things. And so often the conversations are in the car on the way to the 504, in the car on the way to the psychiatrist, in the car on the way to occupational therapy, those five, 10, whatever minutes. And it's very rushed and it's heated and you're anxious already. Well, and, and your kid also might be in the back seat. So then you at, can talk about it as candidly too. Exactly. Yeah. So ideally, maybe not right before bed when one of you is exhausted and the other one is spinning and ready to spend all night researching. But ideally, I, I do think talking while walking is a really good thing. I feel if you can get out and take a walk around the block, even once a week for five or 10 minutes, really could make a big shift in, in just connecting. And how are we both going to approach this next appointment? How are we going to approach this dynamic with PDA? How are we going to talk to our um, neurotypical child about the support needs that our autistic child might have? Walking, talking, setting aside time. I know people always dislike it when I say schedule time to talk, schedule time to have sex. But if it's not on the calendar, it might not happen. There's that. And then I think sharing resources, not the pages and pages and the research and the articles that are 20 pages long, your partner might not appreciate that. And if you send them something and you expect a response within five minutes and then you don't get it and you get angry, have a little bit more patience. I like to have partners say, do you have space and time to hear about something right now? Rather than walking into a room being like, all right, here's what's going to happen from now on. Yeah. Here's what I just learned. Do you want to hear about it? And an hour later, I've described an entire book. Do you have space and time to talk about something right now? No, I'm about ready to take a call. No, I'm really tired tonight. Okay, when can we talk? When can we circle back and then make an appointment, make a time um, yeah. to, to do it? Yeah. Gaining that agreement, I think, can be so helpful. And I actually, and I know you said this is something too that comes up in your work. I have an episode on, I think it's episode six on how to navigate. It was a long time ago of like when family is unsupportive or people are unsupportive of the autism diagnosis, how to navigate that. And one thing that I talk about is that gaining agreement 
becomes so important that we're not talking at people, but we're actually collaborating and having that conversation. So I love that idea of explicitly doing that with your partner as well. Yes. And you just brought up maybe extended family dynamics. I don't know when this episode will air, but either way, whether it's before the holidays or after, there's always extended family dynamics. Going into a family holiday situation, reunion situation with with aligning with your partner on how are we going to deal with meltdowns? How are we going to deal with sensory overload? How are we going to deal with people stigmatizing, stereotyping, criticizing us about our parenting? Will you stand next to me and support me? Will you be my ally and advocate when I'm talking about our child? Or are you going to laugh off some ridiculous, ignorant comments somebody makes because it's easier? That's that whole, are you being apathetic? Are you just people pleasing? Are you masking? Are you just trying to avoid conflict? Because I don't want, I'm going in like mama bear. And so are you on board? <laughs> yeah. and, and having that conversation before the party or dinner or whatever is really good because it could feel extra isolating and angering and really throw a wrench into the relationship if you don't have a shared goal in going in how you're going to advocate for yourselves and your child and your family on the whole for at a family event. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Cause I think too, sometimes maybe the other partners caught off guard, especially if they're not the deep diver. Yeah. Right. And they haven't thought through all of these scenarios. All of a sudden, when they don't stand up for you, it's like, what? Like, how do you not? But it mm -hmm. literally might be they're caught off guard or they don't know what to say. Or sometimes, too, it's I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to create conflict. And yes. having those conversations ahead of time allow you to have a lot of transparency and figuring out how you want to navigate this together as a couple. Yes. One of the biggest arguments we had recently, my partner gave me a gift. It was very kind. I didn't respond overtly. Oh my gosh, thank you. That's the most amazing gift is I so appreciate it. I was, I'm a little bit more reserved. I'm not, I don't appease people with flowery praise. I'm just, that's not me. And so somebody else at the table, you hardly reacted. Like you, you hardly even looked gra grateful. I'm like, okay, you're criticizing me about how grateful I am by my facial expression. And so my, I, the fact that, and then everyone at the table started criticizing me at my response to receiving the gift. And my partner was like, that's who she is. This kind of m made me feel like he was throwing me under the bus. And so having a sense of sensitivity towards your autistic partners, your autistic children. When somebody comes downstairs, if the autistic child needed a break and needed to take a nap and the family's, oh, finally, so-and-so is going to show their face at dinner. Nice to see you. And then one parent's supportive of the fact that they needed some time away. And the other one kind of plays into the joke. That's going to cause a problem in the couple. Does that make sense? Am I making oh, sense? Oh, totally. That's such a great example too of understanding maybe why they needed a break or why they're on their tablet or why they're off in the corner stimming because that's what the child needs. Right. And then how do we support that response? Because not everyone understands that what the purpose of that is. And yeah. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. so cool. Yeah. Okay. It feels weird to end the episode here, but I still want to ask it. So we know that they estimate like over 80% of parents of autistic children get divorced. What 
just comment if you can, what are common patterns you see there and what are ways to be mindful of those things? Almost like a proactive approach of how can we navigate this until it's too late. And divorce isn't a bad thing. Sometimes parents have to uncouple in order to be their best selves. And how can parents come together to work towards this collaborative approach? Yeah, I'm really grateful that you just said divorce isn't a bad thing because sometimes it is for the best. I I sometimes tell my clients, your relationship hasn't failed. It hasn't failed. It's just complete. Like you've maybe learned what you need to do from each other. If you have an autistic child, you're going to be, there's a lot of overwhelm. It is possible that in a divorce situation, the parents have an opportunity to rest, to regulate to get time away, to self-care. There's benefits to that. I'm not advocating divorce, but I'm just saying there's benefits to having time away from a child who requires extra needs. So supporting that, if that's people's decision. I ended up, as I mentioned, separating, but still living with my partner because we have a child with uh, extra needs. And that's an unusual arrangement, but when I work with couples, there's lots of options. Maybe you have separate bedrooms. So you get a little bit of personal space. Maybe you each alternate if you have the resources where you get away for a day each weekend. Maybe you figure out like who's in charge of what each month as to can you do the medication and the calling the insurance companies this month? I just need a break from that. And then maybe you, and maybe you switch back and forth. There's so many things that are coming up in my mind about it. But safety comes up again, because if one person is very sensitive as, as a parent, for example, to uh, sensory overload, there's going to be difficulty for the partner who doesn't understand it, where even if there's a television playing upstairs and music playing downstairs, for me, that's too much. And then I'm like, have you no respect for my sensory overload? And bringing back to the conversation in a calm way, not like I just did, which is what I did last night, just reminding people of how my, uh, it's challenged when there's a lot of audio, different audio things coming in at the same time. And so continuously returning to conversations, whether it's around the dinner table or in the car or on a walk about, about how we each perceive things, not just the autistic child, not just the autistic adult, but how everybody perceives things. Because the person who's potentially neurotypical or not autistic also has needs, also has desires and wants. So it's not only about the neurodivergent person and having that empathetic lens and continuing to come back with empathy, compassion, and, and generosity. Like assuming that everybody's desire is to make this family work in whatever structure you decide, like assuming that coming into the conversation with generosity. I think I just talked in a many circles, hopefully answering the initial question. You did. Yeah. And I think one thing that really stood out for me is this idea of, and you talked about this at the start of the episode, that often when you have an autistic child, it is so easy to center on them, center on what their needs are, make all conversations be about that, all decisions. But what I'm also hearing in this is in addition to having proactive conversations about how you want to parent and be unified, you also need to have proactive conversations about what your needs are as a human being and helping your partner to understand as well how your brain thinks because they don't live inside your brain like you do. 
Exactly. Yes. I, I wrote a course called Same Bed, Different Brains, just talking about how each person comes to a relationship with a different sense of reality, with different needs, with different desires and honoring both. And I also just want to, and, and maybe we end on this, but the difference between ability and capacity and honoring that for all people in the family, honoring, can we do more? Yes. Can we do everything? Yes. Can we, you know, take on the world? Yes. But that's not our capacity. And having a conversation with each person in the family as to what their ability and capacity is even on a daily basis. Like today, I have no capacity to do what I thought I would be able to do. I know this is our cleaning day. I don't have the capacity to have a cleaning day today. And whatever language you use, whether it's spoons, I don't have any more spoons, or I don't have the capacity for this, or I'm at 80% yesterday, now I'm at 20%. However you talk about it, that should be part of the conversation in a family, checking in on people's capacity each day. I love that. And that's such a perfect place to end this. My only last question for you. I know at the beginning of the episode, we talked about your podcast and your TikTok, but mention if people are interested in continuing to learn from you or want to work with you, what are the best ways to navigate that and connect? Yeah. If you want to work with me, feel free to write to me. My email is Pasha at PashaMarlow.com. So it's my name, my website, PashaMarlow.com. I'm keeping it simple. Facebook and LinkedIn, Pasha Marlow. Instagram and TikTok is at NeuroQueerCoach, but I do individual coaching, couples coaching, group coaching, and then also the workshops and, and the corporate trainings. And I'm digging into professional speaking so I can speak to conferences. I just spoke at the International ADHD Conference about neuroqueering. So whoever's listening, whether it's you're an individual, a couple, or potentially even an organization that wants me to come talk to you, I'd be happy to. Thrilled I, to. I love it. And we will link all of that in the show notes so it's thank super you. easy for them to just go click and connect with you. Pasha, yes. thank you so much for this conversation today. You're welcome. Thanks, Dr. Tay. I really admire and appreciate your work and, and you holding space for this important conversation. Thank you. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you back here next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here, and I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye, y'all.